0: This morning, Hebrews chapter 6, as we close out that chapter, walking our way through this book. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20 this morning. 1004 in your Pew Bible. And let's pray before we read uh, verses 13 through 20 together this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do come before you as children this morning, in need of a word from our Heavenly Father. Would you help us to come before you with childlike faith, Will we receive your word as truth? We know that when we have left this place, that you, Father in Heaven, have spoken to us. Would you speak to us with your Fatherly, tenderly care. May we find that we are rejoicing sitting at your feet. We pray all of this in the strong name of Christ, our elder brother and Savior. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, The Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Remember Hebrews 6 began with this strong warning from the writer of Hebrews, this preacher, to the people that were in his congregation. And after he's given that strong warning, now he's going to follow up with with. The offer of hope, great hope. And when he thinks about hope, his mind turns to the great patriarch of the faith, to Abraham. If you think back to the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldees, and he calls Abraham from the Ur of the Chaldees to walk to the promised land, the land of Canaan that God had promised to him. In many ways, it's a great picture of The life of faith. It is a life that is walking after hearing the promise of God and walking to that place of fulfillment where everything that He has promised to us is realized. We have to keep walking. Keep walking in faith until we reach our destination. Remember, that's the concern of the writer of Hebrews is that these Hebrew Christians are going to stop walking in faith. That they will turn back to what they had known before. And so the the writer reminds them of the great oath that every Jew would be familiar with, the promise God made to Abraham. And God fulfilled His promise. Walk in faith and keep reminding yourselves of the God whom you have entrusted yourself to. That's His message. Four points this morning. Our first is this. God is worth hoping in and waiting upon. First of all, God is worth hoping in and waiting upon. God had promised Abraham that he would give him this promised land, the land of Canaan, that he would make him into a great nation, a nation with more descendants than there are dust particles on the ground, than there are more stars in the heavens. And he said that through Abraham, through his seed, he would bless all of the nations and God would be his God. He promised him but Abraham struggled uh, to continue to have faith and to hope in this promise of God. So in Genesis 15, we have this glorious text where God takes it one step more. He's already promised, but now in Genesis 15, he enters into a covenant with Abraham. A text where he will divide the animals in two, and then God will put Abraham to sleep. And when Abraham goes to sleep, then God will walk through the divided animals, the parts of the animals, thereby taking the curse of both sides of the covenant upon himself. He covenants with Abraham. And Abraham still struggles in his faith, and there are moments where he is really wrestling and doubting, and his hope is not exactly as firm as it should be, and so we get to Genesis 17, and God gives him a sign of the promise of the covenant that he has given to him. What we've already discussed this morning, what we saw on the waters of baptism, he gave to him in the sign of circumcision. So that he would always have in his flesh a reminder that God has promised to me. And then the writer of Hebrews, what he does is he takes us in verse 14, he quotes from Genesis 22. That glorious scene of the sacrifice of Isaac, where, where Abraham goes up on the mount to sacrifice his son, he's, he's being tested, his faith is being tested, and God promises to him yet again. And he says to him, as the writer of Hebrews quotes, surely I will bless you and multiply you. The point that the writer of Hebrews is making is that God has repeatedly promised Abraham and He promises once again with His own oath, I will surely. Now even then, Abraham did not immediately see all of these different promises from God fulfilled. He lived for decades upon decades waiting for it. As the writer says, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. Having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. God is worth hoping in and waiting upon. But you have to be patient. You are to be patient. Patience is not exactly an American virtue. It's not something that we're very good at. Uh, we get frustrated going through the drive through because it takes too long. Uh, patience is often something that is frowned upon in our culture. It's seen as weak. But it requires strength to be patient. And Abraham demonstrated it. He waited upon the Lord. And waiting upon the Lord is one of the great Disciplines of the life of faith. And there's such promise in it. That glorious text in Isaiah that so many of you have memorized and you know well where he speaks of it. He says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Be patient. Wait for the Lord. Why wait upon the Lord? Because He's worthy of trust. He's worthy of waiting upon. That leads to our second point this morning. What God promises, God fulfills. What God promises, God fulfills. The writer of Hebrews is going to work this out by pressing in on the fact that you and I, we make all kinds of promises. We live lives of promises in our relationships with other human beings. He's taking stock of that in verse 16. We make promises with friends and our children and our parents and our spouses. We have stated and we have unstated promises with neighbors and with co-workers and our boss and our teacher and our fellow students in the classroom. And at times we find that we need to to take that promise that we've made and take it one step further. And so we will take some kind of oath, or we will take some kind of vow before one another. We will swear on something that is greater than us, as the writer says. And so we may place a Bible in our hands and place our hand on the Bible, or we may go to a notary of the of the Republic and go to that notary who is somehow has some trustworthiness by the society that we live in, and they will stamp whatever it is that we are writing our name on and signing and say, ah, they're trustworthy. They said this before me, and I saw it. But for God, there is no notary. There is no name to swear by. There can't be because there is no one greater to serve as a witness or a judge. And so the writer says in verse 17, when God wanted to reassure Abraham, He guaranteed it with an oath. I told my kids over the years, uh, probably more times than they want to hear, that uh, you have to be a person of your word. I tell them all the time, I want to be a man of my word. If a man doesn't have his word, what does a man have? And yet there are times where I have made promises to my children. And there have been circumstances that have arisen that didn't allow me to fulfill this or that promise. And I can hear them saying, oh, but dad, you said. And I have to asked for their forgiveness. I, I did say that. But this or that circumstance prevented me from delivering on it. But God never does. He's never surprised. His word is never in jeopardy by circumstances outside of His control. Nothing takes His word from Him. What God promises, God fulfills. The writer's point is this, Abraham obtained the promise, so you will obtain the promise. He says in verse 18, God cannot lie. He guaranteed it with two unchangeable things. His word of promise and His oath. We have His promise in His word. And He cannot lie. Have it. As Paul says in Timothy, he says that all Scripture is God breathed. That is, this is God's exhalation. This is His word. And He cannot lie. Or as Jesus will say in John 17, 17, when He's praying to the Father, He will say, your word is truth. God cannot lie. It is an impossibility. Because He would be abusing His own moral law and His own person. God can no more be a liar than water can be dry. It doesn't work. God by His very nature is true. His very nature, His attributes are not somehow distinct from Him. They're not as if so many garments or clothes that He puts on and that He can take off. God is love. God is holy. God is good. God is true. That is always the case. He can't cease being so. It is as impossible for God to lie as it is impossible for Him to cease being God. And the Bible is God's Word. What you and I have is God's Word. His promises to us. Breathed out by Him. Therefore, this Word cannot be marked by error. What He promises, He fulfills. This Word reflects His character. The Word in its original autographs is wholly true, without error, inerrancy, believing the Scriptures to be without error. That is not a minor doctrine that you and I are to wink at and that we are to nod our heads at. It is essential to our faith. You and I cannot move from the truth, that truth, without jeopardizing the faith, our hope. But most importantly, it jeopardizes the very character of God. He is who He is. He's true. He's trustworthy. So His Word is true and it's trustworthy. You are playing with fire if you deny inerrancy. What God promises, God fulfills. First John five nine through twelve. John says this: If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that He has borne concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. What God promises, God fulfills. The Hebrew Christians are wrestling with is he really trustworthy? Is this God that I've committed myself to, is He dependable? Can I take Him at His word? What do you think? Really, what do you think? What do you depend upon? What do you actually believe? Because we're all depending upon something. Everyone in this world, we're depending upon something. We depend upon family, believing they will support us till the end of our days. Or we depend upon friends, thinking they will always love us. Or we depend upon money, thinking Ah, it will help to get us out of the jam and just make us a little more happy. We depend upon our looks, our charm, our ability to speak or lead or befriend. But here's the reality. As economies collapse, family dies, friends betray, money disappears, looks fade, none of them are solid ground. Rain comes, waters rise, and shaky foundations wash away. None of them are ultimately dependable. And that leads to our third point, or the third point of the writer of Hebrews. There is only one sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Only one sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Verse 19, we have this, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. The curtain, of course, a reference to the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle or the the temple. Jesus has gone beyond the curtain. He has gone into the Holy of Holies. Here our Savior has gone before us. He is the only sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. He alone anchors hold. An anchor holds whether it is calm or whether it is turbulent. It doesn't change with the seasons like friends or money or family or position. It is sure and it is steadfast. But what I want you to notice especially is that Jesus is not generally an anchor. He's not just kind of generally an anchor out there for everybody. No, he's very clear. He says in verse 18, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Those who have fled to God as a refuge, who have turned to Christ as Lord and Savior, turned to Him in faith for their salvation, they have a strong anchor. Has Christ entered on your behalf? Has He entered on your behalf? Has He gone as a forerunner for you? Or to think of that passage that we just quoted from 1 John 5: Do you have the Son? And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. There's an old Scottish story that is told about a a young boy that He was orphaned when he was very young. His parents died when he was a young age. And so his grandfather took him in. And his grandfather was a shepherd. And so the grandson became a shepherd. The grandfather was also a Christian. And so he taught his grandson the, the beauty of having the good shepherd as a savior and Lord. How wonderful it is. And he taught him that that famous 23rd psalm. He taught him especially the opening line of that psalm by taking his little little boy's hand and he said, let me teach you the psalm. And he taught him with his five fingers, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Five words, five fingers. And the story goes is that there was a day that the little grandson was out shepherding the sheep and All of a sudden a blizzard came out of nowhere and and descended upon him and the sheep and so the grandfather bundled up and he went outside to go try and find his grandson but the storm was so horrific and the winds were so howling that he turned around and he went back into the cabin and he had to spend an entire night there in anxiety, anxiety worrying about whether his grandson was going to make it through the night. Finally the morning came and the snow had stopped, and so the grandfather bundled up and he went outside to find that boy. He trampled through the snow and he found him. And when he found him, he found him frozen to death. And the grandfather bent down to pick up this grandson, and as the story goes, Scottish fathers have told their sons for generations as the grandfather picked up his son, he noticed that his hands were in an odd configuration. And that his grandson had taken his right hand and he was gripping the fourth finger on his left hand. The Lord is my shepherd. Died with hope. The moment his eyes closed in death, his hope became sight. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. That's the promise. We have a true and lasting hope. There is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. When God speaks of Himself throughout the Scriptures, it is often He speaks of Himself the same way He will say, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He says those words to remind His people over and over, even as we're reminded in the waters of baptism this morning that He is a covenant-keeping God. This is who I am. In fact, when he sends Moses down to Egypt to bring his people out, and he says, they are going to ask you, Moses, who sent you? And when I, you go to them and they say, who sent you? Moses, you are to say them, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. He's reminding them. He's reminding them, I have been faithful to my promises in the past. God did not give up on His promises to Abraham. He fulfilled them. Did He fulfill His promises to Abraham, the writer of Hebrews is asking you and I? Did He fulfill them to Abraham? And we could go on. Did He fulfill them to Isaac? Did He fulfill them to Jacob? Did He fulfill them to Moses? Did He fulfill them to David? Did He fulfill them to Israel? As He was true in the past, so He will be true in the present and the future. A little shepherd boy understood it. David, as a grown man writing Psalm 23, he understood it. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. David's writing Psalm 23. No doubt he is recalling his own life experiences. And he's saying, oh, God has always been faithful to me. He's always kept His promises. But it's more than that. He's recalling the experience of every believer in God from the beginning of time. God has an unchangeable character. He has an unchangeable way of living up to His unchangeable promises. That's who He is. I am The God of. He's our God. And we're His people. He is our shepherd and we are His sheep. He doesn't abandon His own. In fact, as the writer notes in verse 20, Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Or as David will say in Psalm 23, He leads us in paths of righteousness. He doesn't abandon His people. He doesn't forsake His people. He doesn't forget His people. He leads His people. That's what He does. Our final point. There is only one sure and steadfast path there is only one sure and steadfast path the path of following Christ the writer says he is gone as a forerunner he leads us he does not abandon he does not forsake he does not forget he leads us home There is only one sure and steadfast path. My children are learning to drive right now. And so, of course, their minds are upon roads and driving and everything about that. And so one of them, the other day, I was in the car with them and they were asking me. They said, Dad, how is it that roads get planned and laid out? And typical father fashion. I gave them a much longer answer than they were looking for. Uh, I gave them a history of the Midwest, and then I went to the East Coast, and I said, now, if you go to the East Coast, it's really different. Have you driven in the East Coast? The roads are all windy and turny. You drive in some of these cities and towns on the East Coast, and you think, Could nobody on the East Coast see straight and make a straight line? But there's a reason for it. It's because many of those roads are old cow trails and old Indian paths. They were well-worn paths. Other travelers walked along that path. Such a path is often frowned upon in our day. You're here to make your own way. Don't follow another's path. Two authors, Robert and Wilson, wrote this. They said, Our generation is confused as to the nature of true freedom. We often think that freedom is found in creating our own path through life. As David Gibson said in a book soon to be released, he said, That path is often either being true to ourselves or, quote, striving to live the best version of ourselves. But in fact, as Robertson Wilson said, no matter how often we experience liberation from constraints, limitations, and oppression, we still find ourselves falling into new forms of bondage. That is, what they're saying to you and I is that we're always conforming. You're always conforming. To what someone or something wants you to be. What smacks of self freedom is often simply following a new trend, and it's never fulfilling and it's never lasting. Just think about those hippies, those radical hippies in the 1960s, opposed to everything that was a norm. And now how many of them are retiring after having worked on Wall Street or being a banker or being a big businessman and they're living in the suburbs and they're driving their Mercedes home? It doesn't last. Freedom is found in following the old and tried trail. We have a path that is well worn and sure. It has been traveled before. You think about the old well-worn paths when Americans were going out west. Go west, young man, go west. And you think of like the Santa Fe Trail and you think of the Bozeman Trail and you think of the Oregon Trail. I know many of you have died of dysentery on the Oregon Trail. And you think of those and we often think, ah, it must be like it's this pavement that was headed out west that the federal government laid down. No, it wasn't that at all. What was it? It was ruts created in the ground with thousands and thousands of wagons headed out west. They just created a path, a trustworthy way through the wilderness, through the abandons of the wild west. Other travelers have walked this path, gone before us but the great imprint upon this path, what created the deep ruts that you and I can just slide our feet into as we walk the walk of faith until we reach that promised land. The deep ruts that have been put there were put by the weightiest of all people. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ who walked that path. He's a forerunner. He's gone before us. He leads us in paths of righteousness for His namesake. There is only one way. Following Him alone is the only sure and steadfast path. And so the writer is saying to those that he is preaching to, and so he is saying to you and I this morning, keep walking on the path of faith. Keep at it. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Keep walking. Now I was a teacher and a kids' camp counselor, I think of how many times I would tell kids, right, you say this over and over, don't run, walk especially kids' camp council when they're around the pool. Don't run! Walk! Why don't run? Because it often speaks of fear. It often engenders fear. It's often the result of fear. We walk. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Charles Spurgeon said, commenting upon that verse in Psalm 23, we walk through the valley of shadow death. He said, to walk indicates the steady advance of a soul which knows its road, knows its end, resolves to follow the f- path, feels quite safe, and is therefore perfectly calm and composed. We have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. Sure and steadfast. We have a God who has made us promises who cannot lie. You have a Savior who has gone before you as a forerunner, has entered into the Holy of Holies and has secured it for you. Keep walking. Keep walking in faith. Keep walking. That's what he's saying to you. Keep at it. Let's pray. Our Father, we give you thanksgiving this morning for granting us such a great salvation. We're so undeserving you've given us an eternal hope will be realized one day as our eyes close in death or our Savior returns. What a gracious and kind God you are. Keep our feet on the path. Keep us assured in our hope. Keep our eyes fixed on glory. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.